You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. I want to be a producer. Hi, I'm Andrew Child, and welcome to 50 Key Stage Musicals, the podcast, a companion piece to the Rutledge Press publication, 50 Key Stage Musicals, which is available for purchase by going to Routledge.com or clicking the link below in today's show description. Today's episode focuses on Chapter 41, the producers, and with us today is author of that chapter, Casey R.T. Graham. Casey is a director, music director, writer, and educator. Associate and resident director credits include the Broadway revival of On the 20th Century, the national tour of The Fan of the Opera, and the U.S. and Australian tours of Dirty Dancing. Conducting credits include the national tours of Oklahoma, The Producers, The Wizard of Oz, and Spring Awakening. Casey is head of the musical theater department at the University of Nevada, Reno. His book, Small Talk, is available on Amazon. Casey, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So uh, just to kick things off, can you tell us a little bit about what is your relationship with the musical The Producers? Yeah, I conducted the first non-equity tour. So it was 2005 the first non-equity tour of the producers to go out. And I didn't know anything about the show beforehand. Okay. I grew up on the West Coast, so I was not quite as in touch with musical theater on Broadway and in New York as a lot of people were. Mm. It was, you know, kind of before the days of chat rooms really taking off. So like the Broadway news didn't circulate quite as heavily. So I was familiar with it from the Tony Awards and kind of word of mouth, but hadn't seen or really heard much about it until I was hired to conduct the tour. Okay, wow. And what were your original impulses when you were interacting with this material yeah I mean uh, uh, first of all like obviously it is wildly funny and then you you sort of get past that and there's like an immense amount of heart to it which is what really got me surprised me it like sneaks up on you because it's so over the top and so ribald that then to have kind of this it's a love story really between Max and Leo at the end and so it really like hits you in a, a different way that you're not expecting so late in the show um Yes. Yeah, so once I once I was hired to do the tour, they took me to New York to see the show a couple times, so like get a feel for it and how it flows. 
And my first thought was like, it was so wildly funny. And like, I didn't know how it was going to play across the rest of America. Because on a non-equity tour, you're not playing the major cities. So you can have expected to play similarly in Boston or LA or Chicago. But when you get into like tiny towns like Waco, Texas or Paducah, mm-hmm. Kentucky, like how is it going to play in smaller towns when the humor is so broad, it sort of mocks everyone and anyone under the sun. Um, it's so non-politically correct. Like, how is all this stuff going to play in smaller towns? I remember they get to the number, keep it gay. And I was like, I don't know what this is going to do in small town America. Uh, and it was one of the biggest surprises of my career because it played wildly successfully in these small towns who just like ate up every moment of it, laughed along with you. There was no, I was afraid there'd be a little bit of laughing at because it's such big characters, but just like laughing with the show, which was such a nice experience. Was that do you think uh, sort of a nervousness that was shared by the company, by the whole production team when the tour I was starting? A, I think a little, I think especially the cast was, you know, it is a comedy you have to throw yourself into or it doesn't work. And so I think that, you know, until you get that first couple of test audiences on the road, you're not sure. And when you do a show in the same city, you're going to have generally the same audience feel. But when you're taking it to all these different markets, north, south, east, west, you're just not quite sure what to expect. And it sort of was universally just adored all over the country, all over Canada, everywhere we played. Just wow. people ate it up. Which this is not a show that is that's necessarily a given. You know, you've got no. Keep It Gay. You've got Springtime for Hitler, you know. Yeah. You've got that entire that entire sequence. You've got, I mean, misogyny all over the place. You've got in, in Ula and like, how are people going to, to take it? And what, it's one of the brilliant things about the show, I think, is the way it's structured. Like you mm-hmm. get to keep it gay and you're like, okay, well, anybody in the audience who's maybe even slightly homophobic is like going to leave by now. But then you introduce Ula. So they're like, well, maybe I'll stay because like there's obviously like sex symbols in the show as well. For mm-hmm. me, there's just like something for everyone. I think it's one of the like little Easter eggs of the show is how it's structured to like just keep keep offending you, but then bringing you back in the next scene. There we go. That can be the t- something for everyone in the producers <laughs> and something to offend everyone too. just, you know, exactly. kind of balance out the scale. Did you come across anything in researching for this chapter that you felt like content wise sort of paved the way for this show to become such a runaway Broadway hit? Uh, yeah, I think part of it was the timing. You know, we hadn't at, the, at like 2000, 2001 in New York. It was a very serious time. Like we didn't have, we had family shows and we had serious shows. We had like the hangovers of Phantom and Les Mis that sort of like played out for the next decade. And so we didn't really have like shows that were just written to the go and laugh and to go and have fun. And so I think that part of it is really what like set it up to be successful is people were hungry for something like that. Okay. Um, the other thing, the other nugget that research that I must have known at some point in the back of my head was I hadn't realized or remembered that Mel Brooks was a World War II combat veteran. Oh, like that, okay. you know, you can, you can, you can say, you know, he's Jewish. He's allowed to make these jokes about the Holocaust, but he like really is allowed to sort of make these jokes. He was there on the front lines. Like this is in his DNA and in his history. It comes from obviously a long line of Jewish comedians um, poking fun at themselves and poking fun at their adversaries. But like he lived this experience, which I don't know that I had appreciated when I was doing the show. That does. It certainly gives so much context. I remember uh, really not loving maybe controversial opinion. Um, the movie Jojo Rabbit, just because I felt like it it wasn't harsh enough about Hitler. It 
didn't sure. hit hard enough. And I think the gold standard, if you're going to make a Hitler joke, it is springtime for Hitler. It yeah. is so vicious. It has such a bite to it. Um, but it's also so iconic and over the top and obviously stands on the shoulders with such a respect for musical theater history that he also has. So I do think that is something that gives us context that he was actually in the field. He was actually on the ground and that certainly we can imagine colors springtime for Hitler. Do you, I love, oh, yeah, sorry, go, ahead. go for it. No, I, I just, I love the two layers of springtime for Hitler, the layer of Mel Brooks writing it. And it's just so funny and so wrong, but then the layer of Roger Debris directing the show and mm -hmm. like his take to it. and like, how how over the top that character takes it thinking he's making something high art like i just love watching it through both of those lenses i'm curious you know because so many people say about so many different movies so many different shows you know oh they couldn't get away with that today yeah. do you think is the producers something that we will continue to produce continue to see produced and continue to enjoy yeah, I've gone back and forth on whether where it like will fall as far as that in history and being revived and being reproduced. It is produced still a lot around the country. So I mm. think that question is, is answered as yes, it will continue to be produced. I don't know like what a revival of the producers looks like if there's tweaks at all. You know, it's one of those, it, it's such an equal opportunity offender that I don't know. <laughs> if, if you take one thing out, it's going to make one group happy. But if you take something out, it's going to make another group unhappy. Um, and there are obviously some negative stereotypes of various folk in the show. And I don't know, I, I'm, I haven't answered that for myself and it's not, I don't really have to, which is nice, but um, mm. yeah, I don't know what that next, I think the person who directs the first Broadway revival of it has a, a challenge on their hands as to whether or not you're going to do a kind of museum style, like chorus line is always generally done, or mm. if you're going to take it in a whole new direction and find something new to tell about it or find new ways to find humor in it without necessarily causing harm to to minority groups well and it's it's such an interesting conundrum because i feel like the producers when we talk about a revival uh, susan stroman and mel brooks working together firing at 100 percent, have it such down to a science um to a point where if listeners are interested um in the interview i do about hello dolly Leroy Reams talks about going in as a replacement for Roger Debris and sort of presenting this idea. He thought it would be funny if he didn't shave his legs for the role and how that becomes this whole conversation. And, you know, you need Mel Brooks's approval because everything is that much of a science with all of these jokes and the pacing and everything. Yeah, it's it's one of those shows that I, when you license it, you get the option to like do the original choreography and it comes telling you exactly how it goes, because mm -hmm. it is so like from the jokes, the choreography, it is such a specific machine that that a lot of the jokes don't play if you don't do the original choreography, you know, they don't have the mm -hmm. same impact. It, it's one of those shows where like every aspect of the show is in on the joke. So if you change it up a little bit, the joke becomes something different. Do you think was working on the producers similar or different from the other national tours that you were working on? 
It's a little, it's different. It, I mean, it's very specific, but also comedy is specific to the actors. So they did give the director of the tour who was the associate of the London production. They gave them license, you know, to play with the actors in the beats and find things that really work for them. You found that in places where you tried to force people to do something that Nathan Lane makes funny, they may not be able to make funny in the same sort of way. Okay. And so you might have to play with it a little bit differently. When you're doing a show that's not quite as broadly comic, I found that, you know, replacements and new casts fit into the mold of it a little bit better because, you know, they bring themselves to it in a way that reads naturally without really changing the rhythm of the show. Whereas comedy can really change things up and can really alter the like pacing and the rhythm of the, the piece. Okay. So, and you uh, can probably speak a little bit more about working with replacements and stand-ins. You've worked as an associate director and resident director as well. Yes. Um, yeah, could, you, part of the job. could you tell us a little bit about like your work on, on the 20th century, for instance? Oh yeah. We had a, we had a lot of like random things happen on 20th century. It was a very short run, but we had a lot of, well, we had a very serious illness in, in preview. So we had to cancel a preview one night because Peter Gallagher had at the time didn't know what it was, but it ended up just being like an, an viral infection that just needed antibiotics that we didn't know exactly what it was. So half an hour before curtain, you know, canceled the show, had to put the understudy on and it's preview. So you haven't had any time to rehearse understudies yet. Mm -hmm. um, so spent that night in the theater with the cast and Kristen Jenner with like fl frantically flying through the associate choreographer and I put him into the show. That taught a lot about putting people in, in high pressure situations. And he had obviously like done work in advance. So it wasn't starting from scratch, but figuring out, you know, you have two and a half hours to put someone into a two and a half hour show. So how do you triage? What are you going to do tonight? What are you going to do tomorrow at 45 minutes before curtain? Because there are also union rules. So you can't call them in like four hours early and work on the set. So, you know, you got to be like organized in that moment. It was the most like West Wing experience I've ever had, like walking through the theater with the creative staff and like, are we going to cancel tonight? Like what's going to happen? The director and choreographer were at another function. So like they weren't available. So we just had to like make all these random decisions. And Kristen Chenoweth was lovely and like stayed the whole night to help them because it was her scene partner for the whole show. So like you want to make sure that you're going to be on the same page tomorrow when you get of to course. that. But yeah, um, what was the rest of the question about putting people into the shows? Yeah, I'm just curious for listeners who are maybe interested in what is that like? Would you have any tricks or tools of the trade that you think make that process easier? Yeah, it's if, if you are an actor, you want to, I always think you want to approach the understudy role bringing yourself to it, but also realizing that you're fitting into a production. So, so we've had, you have some understudies who come in and want to make like wild changes to the role and change the sexual orientation of the character or make like large things that you just can't do because that upsets the balance of the piece. And it's not the way that the production has been structured. So you want to work with your director and your associate director to find like how you can make the role your own while still kind of coloring inside the lines, if that makes sense. So you're mm -hmm. going to bring your own shade of the role, but you can't all of a sudden decide to cross downstage left if there's no lighting downstage left. Like they're not going to follow you. They're not going to redesign the show for each understudy who's on. And it also varies greatly by who the creative team is. Some creative teams kind of want everyone to be exactly you know, like come in at the same time, do this the same way. Everything's a little bit more cut and dry. And other creative teams are like, no, you're a living, breathing person. Do what like you do, work with your understudies, work with your uh, associate or resident director, find your way into the role. I know on the Phantom Tour, we were very loose with understudies. They were mm. like blocking was, was not, and it came from a British 
teen. So I think that might have something to do with it, but it wasn't as rigid as a lot of shows I've worked on. We had no number line. They had like, they were all in spots. So you could kind of vary up your blocking a little bit within reason. So all of those understudy performances were very different, which I think can be really fun for kind of groupies you get groupies at shows who want to come to see like everyone has ever played the role of christine Dye, so they'll come and see and see like what different things that person brought to the role which can be really fun mm, which so i the fan of the opera episode i got to chat with susan russell who was a replacement in the broadway production in the role of carlotta and she has yeah. a lot to say about going in as a replacement um what that's like. And also, I believe she started as an understudy in the role. So that was a super interesting conversation. I'd love to, coming back to the producers a little bit, what is it like when you're preparing to conduct a show with this huge, big Broadway sound that's clearly, you know, inspired by, influenced by, a, you know, a century of these huge shows what does it look like what's going through your mind as you're preparing to conduct a national tour of with this score yeah it's a lot of pre-preparation so like looking at the score looking at the instrumentation and figuring out like why is this one section super brass heavy or who's like the most important voice here because you have like a sound engineer but a lot of a conductor's job is to balance amongst the self amongst the orchestra itself a little bit because you can only do so much at the board. So you want to give them something good to start with. So figuring out like, who's your solo? What are they saying with this particular instrumentation? There's like a gorgeous alto, I think it was alto flute solo in um, Till Him. If that's the name of the song, right? Yeah, end of the show, <laughs> Till Him. Um, that's, that's beautiful and that you like rarely get to hear. And like, you sort of do a little bit of creative problem solving and questioning of like, why did you pick this particular instrument here? And personally, I just think it's because it, it has a lower, like sweeter, you don't notice it quite as much as if you were to have a flute solo there. And so it like sneaks up on you a little bit. And for me, it sneaks up on you in the same way that the emotion of the song sneaks up on you, that you don't realize like this whole show has been about these two, like actually forming a legitimate friendship that neither of them has really had the skills to do before by the end that it's not a love story. I mean, Ula and, and Leo have like kind of a superficial not two-dimensional, but it's more surface level love story, but the real heart of the show is between these two. And you find moments like that that are echoed in the orchestration. Um, also looking at the vocal breakdowns and how things are scored that way. Producers has a lot of offstage singing that they originally record to happen backstage while things are happening. So springtime for Hitler, you know, you've got most of your ensemble on stage, but then you've got this like heavenly chorus backstage. And so deciding like, how is that, how does, how do we get that sound out of the singers? Because some of it is, you know, from the soundboard, but a lot of it isn't how the singers approach it. And is it, it's going for kind of an old school MGM sort of sound here on the springtime for Hitler ah, 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 and all that background stuff. And so kind of knowing what's being referenced or figuring out what's being referenced is half the job. And do you specifically remember anything that you felt like you were really digging into? Like you mentioned MGM sounds. Was there anything else that you feel like is directly and strongly referenced in this score? Uh, I don't, I, off the top of my head, I don't know any specifics. Um, I do know that the like Judy at the Palace moment is, is kind of a famous nod to Judy Garland sitting on the edge of the stage. So they brought... Uh, Roger Debris down as Adolf Hitler to have his Judy Garland moment at the edge of the stage. So okay. as if he weren't camp enough, he's going even a step further. So that's like an illusional, an illusion reference. They always call it that Judy at the palace moment where mm -hmm. he comes down, he sits in a really like stark spotlight down there, like her mm -hmm. um, concerts at the palace in New York. 
There's also the high the high lows section, which is sort of old school 1940s sound of tight harmony. It's the it's in springtime for Hitler, and it's the what is the lyric? The Führer is causing a Führer. It's like uh-huh. the four the four tappers, and it's like really tight harmony. So that's a fun a fun thing to to teach and to work on and to try to get that specific sound that harkens back to it's kind of Mannheim steamroller today or or Manhattan (laughs) transfer, that sort of tight harmony that we don't hear as much, but we get to like get a little tip of the hat in this number. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So do you think, is there a different process when you're taking on this show as opposed to when you're taking on conducting a uh, more traditional show like Oklahoma. Yeah, it can be. I would say, I mean, obviously all musicals are like the music is steeped in the character and what's happening. But with a show like this, that is so heavily um, parody and, and satire a bit, that there are going to be other things that they are going to be paradising, if that's the right word, parroting, paradising. Um, anyway, gently sending up. Um, mm-hmm. So you find those moments like the Judy of the Palace or the High Lows or... Um, you know, Ula's number, which sort of just harkens back to a, a vamp number of like the 30s, 40s, where you just get two guys who just get to sit there and watch this bombshell sing this like great song. So it's a little bit more, I think, research as far as history in, in a show. Like if you're doing a show like Oklahoma, you're not necessarily researching the style of music they're singing as much. You're digging more into the character and why is the character singing in this register maybe? Or why is the character have this particular song at this moment so that you can help in, in coaching the singer and how where it comes as far as that goes. So I would say for producers, it's more researching the time period, the, the, the variation in styles, because you have a lot of different musical styles. There's some like conga sections. There's the sections that want to sound like old German folk songs that, that Franz gets to sing. So lots mm. of different, you know, you have your sound of like the show, and then you've got all sorts of different pastiche sounds that come in throughout. Okay. And then how would you say that is even different from conducting a more contemporary show like Spring Awakening? How's it different? Uh, I mean, well, stylistically, it's very different. Um, it's it's a show that should is a, intended to sound not super amplified, so that's its own challenge. Whereas okay. Spring Awakening is like, this is a rock concert. We want to blow the audience out of their seats at times. Okay. So approaching it that way. I mean, Spring Awakening, to me, I would approach in a much more, a much more similar fashion to how I would approach Oklahoma. Like they're more, the songs are more um, storytelling than necessarily producers don't really dig into the characters as much. They're more on the surface. Okay. But Spring Awakening has its own issue because the songs are like a different style than the rest of the show. And so you really dig into like the lyrics are very poetic and do not mean what they mean on the surface. 
And some of them I'm still convinced don't really mean anything like they're poetic, um, but you have to like find something that they mean to you for to like talk to the actors about because they have to be personal to the actors. And the songs are intended to be, Spring Awakening is a little unique because the songs are intended to be the like actors emotions as if they were experiencing it as the character. So it's a little bit removed from the character. So it's mm. kind of why it's con- more contemporary than the text is. Okay. So that's a whole nother layer of talking to actors and coaching and working with actors. And sometimes that is a music director's job. I've worked on shows as a music director where it was like definitely teamwork in working with the director and talking, coaching actors through songs. And sometimes it's not that it's more that that's the director's job and you take more of the like technical backseat a little bit Hmm. it just kind of depends on the project phantom was very much like a venn diagram of like whose job was what because it's all sung through so like the conductor has very strong opinions on how you sing this and what you're meaning but what your voice is telling the audience in this particular moment so there's much more overlap between director and music director Hmm. and you would say that's not as present with something like the producers I think, yeah, I think it would be not as present if it was something that had to do with like a joke isn't landing because we can't understand this word or because the song is too fast right now. That would be where you might like chime in a little bit more. But in producers, it's more about um, getting the sound you want out of the singer and less about the meaning. I think it's not always that cut and dry, but I would say that it falls more into that category. Okay, so this chapter on the producers, this comes pretty late in the book, you know, where what chapter 41 out of 50 do we see and can we already trace the influence of the producers on later musical theater works oh yeah absolutely i think producers sort of gave permission to be a little bit more adult a little bit naughtier a little bit more satirical i think you see it in book of mormon and something Mm -hmm. rotten and you see it in these kind of more broad comedy shows for sure. And it also was a, for me, and it's a template that I don't think a lot of people has, have observed. For me, it was a template on how to make a movie work as a musical. And part of it is, it falls into two categories. One, I think the best movie adaptations into musicals are not your blockbusters. They're shows that were a little more cult, a little mm-hmm. more like had a, a maybe a very rabid, loyal following, but it wasn't like the show that everybody could quote and knew everything right. about. Because you look at something like Young Frankenstein, which same team wasn't as successful. And I think it's because the movie is much more well-known. You have to include like every little joke that the audience loves and is coming to expect. Producers, they had license to just change so much about it that they could really make it work on stage. Do you have other movies in mind, like the producers, that were kind of cult classics or had a smaller following, but they became successful musicals? Yeah, I mean, I think I think Once is a good example. You know, hmm. it, it captured a, a, a like an art market, but it wasn't. You know, your 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 audience that came to see Once the musical was a broader audience that went to see Once the movie. Um, I think also I think Hairspray is a great example because that That's movie is huge, like yeah. it's a great movie, but it is weird and it is nothing uh-huh. like the, the tone of the musical is vastly different. So they were able to just make it a, a musical that was its own thing. Um, I think those two are like standout examples. Yeah, I think um, John Waters, who obviously directed the movie Hairspray, has a joke where he says, yeah, next they're going to do polyester on ice Um, (laughs) just because the musical is is unrecognizable, has a totally different audience following. It's totally different and kind of, I guess, like the producers in a way went from a movie 
to a musical and then that musical was then made into another movie yeah yeah and there's other shows like you look at a show like big that the movie was wildly successful and there's so many points of that movie that people remember that you have to recreate that then it just becomes about coming to the theater to like see that moment whereas when you pick musicals or movies that are less popular the audience expectation is just different right i feel like waitress is another good example of that because i know people who have gone to see the musical open the program and said this is based on a movie um yeah yeah, you know it's uh got a smaller following and i think time i think time that might be the second thing i was going to say i think time is also a factor you know they the musical came so much after the movie same thing with waitress it was 15 years or more around 10 15 years when you make it you know after the big hit people are expecting that's very fresh in their mind. They're expecting that, especially back in the days when we didn't have Netflix. You know, if you saw a movie mm-hmm. and then two years later it was on stage, you're going to have very vivid memories about what that movie is going to look like and sound like. And you're dealing with performances. You have to feel like, do you recreate? Do you tip your hat? How do you approach that aspect? Do you think that the success of the producers, because it was wildly successful, it broke records with its ticket sales, with the Tony Awards it won. It was a hard ticket to come by. Do you think that the success of the producers sort of inspired an influx of movies to musical adaptations? Oh, yes, absolutely. You see, I mean, after it, in its wake, you see a lot. I think the next like three or four Tony winners for Best Musical were based on movies. Still to this day, I mean, we have so many films adapted. Um, I do think it sort of opened that floodgate more than had been in the past. Mm. I mean, because it's, it's been happening since the beginning of movies that they're being adapted into musicals. But I do definitely think, you know, not that I have quantifiable research on this, but it seems like at some point there had to be something that just drove it up because for a while there that's, and maybe still it's that. And uh, the jukebox musicals is really what we're seeing over and over again. I do. I, I do think producers is a large part of that influx in the last 20 years of, of movies turned to musicals. I've, I mean, I remember I wasn't able to follow Broadway news as closely as you are now growing up in Washington state in the early 2000s, 1990s. Mm-hmm. But I remember it was like a huge story in like national news when they brought Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick back and they were going to make a hundred thousand dollars a week. And it was just this big story. So they, they had great press people, first of all, but then secondly, you know, it just, it was successful. So I think producers were like, interesting. Let's see if we can capitalize on this. You know, I think they, I think they maybe sometimes misread the situation and that it wasn't that it was a movie. It wasn't successful because it was a movie. And then we got a rush of, you know, popular movies turned into stage shows that can't really live up to, to what you were able to do on film. Do you think, was there a different lesson that producers should have picked up on from the producers to say, if we want a surefire hit, this is what we should be taking from the producers. I mean, yes and no. I, I think the lesson to take is like, you should find lightning in a bottle. That's like the lesson. Like, okay, you should find okay. a, an author and a director and a design team and six actors who like all can create magic together. You know, I do think a lot of it was that combination. But I think the lesson that, that many did pick up on was it's, it's like the time to laugh. It's like the time to, to bring adults back to Broadway um, to, to enjoy musical comedy. You know, we'd sort of lost musical comedy for a while and got very serious when all the like London shows came in and all the very serious Les Mis and Phantom uh-huh. and 
Miss Saigon and Cats and Shop. Well, Cats isn't all that serious, but um, <laughs> these big spectacle shows that it was more about like getting a ticket to be wowed by that rather than to go and just like laugh harder than you have all week. And so I think producers kind of gave that permission to like, it can, it's, it's okay to have an evening where you're just having like a great time. And maybe the message isn't huge and looming and like something you're going to carry with you for the rest of your life, but you are going to carry that sensation of just having a great time. Mm. It's, it is fascinating. One of our interviews is with Susan Stroman, um, our episode about Showboat. And Susan Stroman choreographed a revival of Showboat. And that's mostly what we're talking about. But we do talk about her work uh, directing and choreographing the producers. And it's just so evident the minute it comes up as a subject, uh, she says that Mel Brooks is one of her close friends. So I think when you say it's lightning in a bottle it is just sort of everyone firing at 100 percent and making this near perfect comedy yeah I, I talk i teach some directing classes and i talk a lot about collaboration between directors and writers and designers and i just think their collaboration is one of the best i think it's one of the best in history and it's partly because i think it's so i think mel brooks was so smart in how he went about doing this like he didn't want to write the score initially he was talked into writing the score he didn't approach it from a, a point of view of i want to have like control over every aspect of this so he knew he like wanted so he found a, a music arranger who helped him arrange the music he found he could have directed it himself but he found mm -hmm. someone who like really had musical comedy and musical theater in their blood and was like let's do this together and i just think that give and take between that creative team is so special and I I think most shows that I am attached to have that same sort of love and you can't, you can't make it, you know, a producer can't put people together and force them to enjoy the process. So it happens sometimes. And I think it really comes out in the final product of this particular show. Do you have other shows that you think like this have that lightning in a bottle quality to them that you would absolutely love to work on to direct, to music direct, to conduct? Yeah. Uh, um, yes and no. I mean, I think I don't think I ever want to direct Hamilton, but I think Hamilton has the same situation with Tommy Kale and Lin Manuel Miranda, mm. two people who were like friends in college who have this relationship in the shorthand and are able to like. I mean, Lin Manuel Miranda did so much for Hamilton, but to be able to stand back and like hand over some of the control to a, a person you trust is really special. So I think that creates just a, a final product that is so seamless, and you can't you don't know where the writing began or the directing takes over and you don't know like how much was the idea that was in the libretto and how much came up in the rehearsal room and with actors as well um you know they had that big lawsuit that the actors ended up being compensated which was great because we often undervalue the contributions actors make in a workshop that uh -huh. bring their ideas and like it's great when you can capitalize that and use everyone's idea in the room um other shows that i like the original collaboration on I mean, I think how Prince and Stephen Sondheim, like I think the shows yeah. they made together That's are pretty special. Yeah. And I think Lapine and Sondheim, when they worked, would work together, it was pretty special as well. Um, and you, you read like lots of things about the ups and downs in their relationships, but like obviously when they were working together, there was something very special happening. So I, yeah. I mean, I would direct any Sondheim show in a heartbeat. Like if you're a theater out there and you need someone, you hit me <laughs> up. Um, just because they're always special, but I think the their shows like Sweeney is such a special show that obviously was influenced by a director as well as the composer. Uh -huh. You know, you can just feel the different strokes in there. Um, you don't necessarily know whose idea was what, but you you know that there was a give and take there and a, a trust between them. 
it's that overlapping the Venn diagrams like you were talking yeah. about already, which is, yeah, I think those are some great examples, all the names that you gave, all those shows. Do you have anything that if a young person came to you and said, I'm going to be directing a production of the producers, would you have anything that you would say to them would be like key should be in the front of their mind at all times? Yeah, I would say cast funny people. You know, it's musically, it's difficult, but there are plenty of people who've done the show who aren't the strongest singers. Ula is a hard one because there are some very specific voice stuff going on. But otherwise, like cast people who are funny and who make you laugh because that is something that you can't teach in a rehearsal period of any length. Like you're not going to be able to find that. So do what you need to do in a rehearsal process if you don't know the actor or an audition process. If you don't know the actors to like find what they can do and what their comedy styles are. Cause you also want people who are sort of on the same page. It's a, mm -hmm. it's a specific borscht belt kind of, there's lots of verbal wordplay as well as physical comedy. So, you know, you don't want to find one actor who's really funny with words, but can't like move their, both their legs at the same time. <laughs> All of the characters are very physically demanding and very physically funny. You get to the end of that show and those actors are exhausted because it's not, it's very different than a lot of musical theater. It is very, physically active a lot of musical theater is but it is very physically demanding in a way that some roles just aren't so finding actors uh, who can bring that to the table i would test out you know test out vocally all, all six of your principles on the stuff on the big stuff you really need to hear i mean that's kind of audition 101 but mm -hmm. make sure that that your ula's got that belt at the end of that song because if she doesn't there's no point in that number that whole number is about the end of that song hitting that i don't remember what the note is but it's a high belt e flat or d or something making sure that they have that and that they have that while they're physical so finding i would find a way in auditions to marry physical with with the vocal because that's a big part of it mm. and then just using once you've cast funny people using their sense of sensibility and their sense of comedy so like it's one of those processes that i wouldn't come in having blocked it all out in advance i would come in like with a sketch and like really ready to play with these actors so that you can find stuff that use the stuff that's in the script and then the other stuff that they sort of fill in you can use their instincts because that's always going to be funnier than you painting your comedy on them right would you say when you talk about this show being so physical so exhausting um requiring you know wide range and ula's voice things like that is this like would you say that this is like a send-up of Guys and Dolls, Hello Dolly, oh, like absolutely. older shows like that? Yeah, I know I know the creative team have talked in the past about it being a love letter to classic musical theater. Okay. And if you look at like the original design, the original design is not as, it is innovative. It is not as visually innovative as designs were in like 2000. It was very much like, let's give a, an updated look to the shows of the 40s and 50s. Okay. So like the walls are, you know, kind of flat-ish and painted on posters of the shows and the way the show moves is, it's beautiful. And it's it's not, I'd say it's old fashioned, but it's like old fashioned done brilliantly well. So you've got like a lot of drops and a lot of like pieces that come in because they wanted it to look and move like a, a 50s musical, but with a much more um, adult sort of sensibility to it. And do you think that, sort of this design that's hearkening back to a different time, does that sort of keep the show looking timeless? Because I don't feel like it dates it. Yeah, no, I totally think it does. I think you could look at photos of much of the producers and be like, is this 1947? Is this 19, 
97 is this 2037 like it just has a classic feel to it um and i mean they, they like spruce things up like william ivy long did his signature sparkle tights where there's like diamond studs uh-huh. sewn into all the showgirls tights so that they will glisten as they walk and so it's like your love letter to 1950s musicals just like kicked up a notch would you say that you have any recommendations if there are listeners who maybe don't know the producers that well what would you say is the best way to get into it should they see the movie hear the soundtrack see the original movie should they be reading it what would you recommend i would recommend the original cast recording like listen to the album i think you get a lot of information off of that and i would find the script and i would read the script okay i don't think i don't think the original movie gives it's good to reference, but it's tonally so different. I don't know that it gives that a director of the musical that much new information. Um, and plus, I, I, I like to, I like to go to like the source material when it's helpful, and I don't know that it's helpful here. And I don't think the movie. I wouldn't necessarily watch the movie adaptation only because it is a very faithful filming of the stage show. But the stage show works so well on stage, and the film feels just a little bit two D. In a, mm-hmm. in a weird way. So if, if you can find a video of the original production and you want to watch that at the Center Library or wherever they show that sort of stuff, that can be helpful. But I think you can also just turn on your creative part of your imagination and the libretto and the, the score and the cast recording will give you enough information to do, a, to do it justice. Great. Well, thank you so much for making the time to chat with me today. Yeah, thank you for having me. And thank you listeners so much for joining us. Please make sure to purchase a copy of 50 Key Stage Musicals by visiting routledge.com or by clicking in today's show description. If you want to learn more about the producers, please also review the links in the below description. I'm Andrew Child, and thank you for listening to 50 Key Stage Musicals, the podcast. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. I want to be a producer, lunch at Sardi's every day. I want to be a producer for the top... Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.